0: probate expert. And this is our Thursday edition of our Thursday uh probateweekly.com podcast we do every Thursday at 4pm Pacific, 7pm Eastern time and whatever it is in, in the middle. We get together real estate investors, wholesalers, real estate agents, attorneys, vendors, and talk about all things probate real estate. Now it's meant to be participative, this used to be done live. And so we'd love to answer questions you can either if you're on the zoom call. You can raise your hand or put a question in the chat box. So I'll get to those questions first. We also stream this live to YouTube and Facebook and LinkedIn. And so if you're there, uh, you put your questions in as well. I'll do my best to get the questions uh, on our call as well. It's meant to be interactive and I prepped the guests that way. Um, So just a a quick uh, introduction. I'm really excited today. Those of you who know my story know that I, um, well, I've been in business a long time and like a lot of agents had done some probate real estate. I really launched my all-in probate lead generation about three and a half years ago. And my technique was to go to court every day, both to learn the process and to meet the people. And I always look for the attorneys that were better than the average bear, because that's who I wanted to work with. And the ones who were less than average, I actually offer my services to them as well. This, our guest today is an attorney who uh, I happened to meet while I was in court and saw him in action, said, wow, I'd love to someday be able to work with him. He also does a great job of educating the public, uh, not just on probate, but how to avoid probate through various estate planning issues, and so we'll get into talk to that about him. Please help me welcome William Hayes from the Hayes Law Firm here in Pasadena. Mr. Hayes, thanks for joining us today. Well, Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me. And I love that picture over your shoulder. I said that last time I saw you, but I'm a sucker for uh, uh, historic pictures and uh, old Los Angeles. Was that
1: like 1959 or something? I, I would imagine it's the late 60s. I, I bought the picture because it had my first car in the picture, a oh, 58 wow. Chevy Impala, so oh, wow. I, I had to have it. But I'm, okay. I'm guessing maybe early 60s.
0: I love that shot with the downtown back when the uh, the line at Los Angeles was the city hall had to be the highest building in the city, I think, until about mid 70s or something. Right. So, yeah. No longer the case. So what could, before, we get, before we jump in too much, what to give a little background about where you grew up and then how'd you got how you got into the practice of law
1: well i am originally from chicago i moved here as a teenager i uh, went to ucla law school and I, I joined an entertainment law firm out of law school uh, it was a boutique firm but we represented many of the major uh, film and music uh, celebrities and uh, one of those uh, celebrities was an actress by the name of Susan Hayward and Miss Hayward had been the Academy award winning, uh, actress as for the uh, best actress category. Uh, when she died, she was a client in the firm. When she died, her son, who was a friend asked that I handle the probate of that estate. And that was the beginning for me in probate, because of course, up to that time, I had been doing just music and film contract work. But uh, this was kind of a a calling for me, I I really enjoyed working with that family and seeing the immediate impact that I could have by working with them. And I've been doing it ever since. So in that firm, whenever anyone died after that, I was the first person to raise my hand and say, "I'll, I'll do it. Wow. Well, it's a very impressive story. Other than the UCLA part, all that
0: is very impressive. Very, very <laughs> well, my
1: wife went to USC, so maybe maybe that'll balance it out a bit. Huh?
0: You're a family, you're part of the Trojan family though. Okay, well, there you go, yeah. And that's what it is with us. So if either party is part of the family, then you're in, so we're not very, we're very inclusive. So <clears throat> describe your practice today. I know you do estate planning as well as probate um, uh, work, and I think some litigation as well. I think I've seen you in court litigate matters. What are the ranges of your of your practice
1: today? Yeah, we do limited lit- litigation. Uh, we pretty much limit our practice to doing trust planning, estate planning, uh, various types of trust, of course, um, you know, th- not only the living trust, but uh, whether it be insurance trust or charitable trust, life insurance trust, we, we do that all of that. Uh-oh, we seem to have lost the screen. Oh, there we are. And uh, we also do trust administration. So, of course, after you do the trust, uh, it's even though it it avoids the probate process, there are some moving parts that have to be dealt with after someone becomes a a successor trustee of a trust. And oftentimes, those people will need some direction, and that's where we come in. I also do Medicaid planning. Uh, Medicaid planning really came about uh, after the uh, the increase in the estate tax threshold, uh, so which uh, helped a lot of people who are high net worth people avoid the estate tax, where it, when it was raised uh, to twelve million, well, currently it's twelve million sixty thousand dollars per individual. Before the estate tax applies, and, and and as you know, it's going to uh, sunset. That's going to change again back in the year 2026. We go back to five million, but we got into doing Medicaid planning because the market for estate planning became that much narrower because most people didn't have a need to do uh, a need to do too much planning to avoid the estate tax. Medicaid planning is about planning for people who are anywhere from low income to upper middle income, how do we plan for that person to help them preserve their assets and qualify for Medi-Cal? Because one of the problems that I have seen more often than, uh, than I care to think about, it had been over the years seen uh, people who had lost their homes to Medi-Cal or the families had lost their homes upon the death of a Medicaid recipient. So what we do is show people how to create irrevocable Medicaid trust into which they can transfer their assets and have them still be able to qualify for Medicaid. So my my focus went from helping people who were wealthy avoid the estate tax to helping people who were middle-class and upper middle-class avoid losing everything. And I, I feel a better sense of satisfaction in doing that. And of course, we do probate.
0: You know, it's interesting, when I look at your, your website, and I know, you know I've, I've researched enough attorneys. And I know clients will tell me names of attorneys. I see website with a similar layout. And I see four categories. And so in some attorneys, I'll see like you know, civil litigation, estate planning, drunk driver, and criminal. Uh, and I go, how could you do two of those well? And, yeah. and you do have four, but all really at some level inter- interrelated, meaning the estate planning will avoid the probate most of the time, sometimes something comes up. The probate is if you did an estate plan, but all these are kind of interrelated uh, to a degree. So it seems your focus overall is about intergenerational transfer of assets and how to protect your assets. Is yeah. a
1: summary. That's a fair summary. I mean, there's a certain synergy that happens between those four categories. So I don't think I'm veering too far off uh, the, the the path and working in those areas, yes. And it seems to me that the the most successful attorneys from a business point of view,
0: I find are always the ones that specialize rather than you know, having a broad net of, well, I wanna get this deal or I got this, so it comes to me. Um, I, I find that uh, without a doubt, the ones who are really, really good, have a very narrow niche. If you know what that niche is, it fits great. If not, uh, you're really you're not the right person. So, when so anybody who watches this, I, I get asked all the time on different chat boards and such, "Oh, we need a appropriate attorney in uh, you know this area," and there'd be like five different answers, and it's like, "But you even know what they need? How could any of those answers be right?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my experiences, odds are none of them are right. You're better off finding out what they need be more specific. So let's backtrack a little bit, go to the beginning one, um, estate planning services, and I know you, and again, another reason why I reached out to you was, I saw that you do a, a steady diet of education in this area to help people understand the importance of um, estate planning. So I don't wanna have you do your whole estate planning seminar for us, but give me like a, a brief overview of why, why is it important for somebody to plan for estate state if they're healthy and they have money and they're liquid, and everybody's happy and there's unicorns dancing and rainbows in their backyard, why should they take time out of their day and spend money with an attorney to do estate planning?
1: Well, they're healthy today. And as we know, everybody is going to die at some point. You've heard the, the phrase, uh, you know, the death rate in California is still 100%. Well, that's, people need to plan for that. And even though you're healthy today, statistically, the department of health of, of of the united states says that 7 out of 10 people over the age of 65 will have long term care health problems and that that statistic is quoted across not o- not only by the department of health but by all of the insurance companies 7 out of 10 people will have long term care problems and 40% of that number will wind up in nursing homes wow. so when I think about planning, I I know that you can't really have a complete estate plan unless you have planned for that issue, because it's not just a possibility, it's a probability, right? So when I talk about doing estate planning, not only do I uh, focus on just creating a trust and and the, uh, the associated documents, we need to talk about How do we protect this person if they become one of the 70% of people who have long-term care health problems? Now, there's a distinction to be made between long-term care health and your general health issues. Kaiser and Blue Cross will pay for hospital visits and doctor's visits. But if you have a chronic ongoing health problem, they may well not cover that. And Medicare will only cover that for up to 100 days. So you need to have a plan that deals with that issue. How are you going to protect yourself if you don't have long-term care insurance? What are you really going to do? Are you gonna just leave yourself and your family saddled with these humongous bills from hospitals that you really can't pay? Or are you going to have a plan? So I practice a specialized form of estate planning referred to as elder law. And for a large degree, what elder law is about is how do we protect people as they age, so that they can really have a reasonable expectation of enjoying golden years, uh, it, it, and given those statistics, if you haven't had some kind of, if you don't have a plan in place, you may well not enjoy those years. So I don't know if I answered your question, Bill, yeah,
0: but yeah, 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 no, I think I think that the answer always is, if you don't have a plan, the state of California has a plan for you. Um, you may not like their plan; it looks a lot like the DMV. It's just not as Ah, uh, customer service oriented as a DMV, but there's a plan there for you. And if you plan ahead, you can make your assets go further and choose your
1: uh, your uh, options.
0: In well, Part of estate planning if is also if
1: you're, if you're like Chuck Simmons, huh? you, you're gonna live forever. <laughs> I just saw well, his, email, hope. his message let's go across. where to go, Chuck!
0: <laughs> Chuck's a bit of a smart aleck, so I had to give a little smart aleck answer back. On the, if, you're no. not, if you're not, if you're on the Zoom, <laughs> a little, we're chatting back and forth here, wall. Well, yeah. Bill, talk, well, is talking. I didn't mean to get caught on that. Okay, I felt like the teacher caught me chatting during class. Um, so I also know the state planning is for when you pass how the assets are, and then you talked about how you know um, uh, and, and the and the costs and such. But also, it it has to do with uh, planning for if God forbid you're incapacitated, like who makes those decisions in your life. I know recently my uh, my daughter uh, had her first grandchild, her first grandson. And while we have great terms with my son-in-law and daughter, and we have great terms with his parents, they're fantastic people, they live in New York, um, I can imagine even that we'll get along, deciding who makes decisions for a child could be very um, difficult. It, it, you know it, it, Those stresses come out under time. So how does estate planning help protect the children? For somebody who is perfectly healthy today and financially sound, what are some of the tools you have to help children uh, get protection in case something happens to parents?
1: Well, of course, for younger people, oftentimes it's the children that is the great motivation. That's what motivates them to consider estate planning. And that and the fact that they may purchase their first home or something like that. But if if you are a young parent and you have children, you certainly wanna make sure that if something happens to you, the people that you feel will be best in handling their needs is appointed to do that. And in your trust planning, you will designate that person. And you might also set up a fund to make sure that uh, uh, the financial needs of that child are are met. But if you don't do that kind of thing, of course you wind up in probate and it becomes problematic to to get that money immediately. So you want to have a trust in place so that there's no delay, there's no time lapse between um, your disability or death and, and being, making sure that the child is well taken care of. No, no, recently you were a guest speaker by,
0: I want to say the Humane Society for people who have non-human errors that they want to have taken care of after the owner. Uh, a way to set money aside to do it. Can you kind of briefly describe that as an option and what, what that looks like?
1: Well, when we do a trust, we create various types of subtrusts. And one of those subtrusts, of course, is for pet owners. And many people are as close to their pets as they are to their children. And they want to make sure that if something happens to to them, that the pet is well taken care of. So we set up the subtrust. They designate the person who's going to be uh, in charge of that trust. It might be that they even have a trust protector to make sure that the pet is well taken care of and to make sure that the money that they leave for the care of the pet is, is uh, doled out in the way that they feel it should be done. So yeah, it's it's really interesting when I do the presentations for the Humane Society to talk to, to uh, pet owners and see the love that they have for the pets. And I, I know many of the people here are probably pet owners, but the reality is, is that in the state of California, a pet is not considered uh anything more than just property and so you cannot have just a will in which you leave your money to a pet you know you have to set up an apparatus that will take care of the pet and and that's what uh, i try to convey to uh, people when i do these presentations and
0: it's you know i'm not a pet lover i mean I, i'm not i'm not a hater I, you know i just i have a busy life and i don't really appreciate you don't have the time. time sure yeah well whatever so but but it is amazing how to a group of people some uh, a, a, a you know percentage it's so important to them and when i learned there was such a tool of course if you love your dog or cat or whatever your pet is why would you not do this as a way to maintain them i know my wife I'm, i tell her all the time the day she's gone on the way home from the funeral i'm taking that dog to the to the pound or wherever where you take dogs to, to donate them, and she starts yelling at me. Um, but if the trust said I had to take care of it, I guess I'd have to take care of it. So uh, yeah. there's some protection you can build into the process.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's you know there's uh, there's as you have uh, seen people like Leona Helmsley. You remember that yeah. story? Yeah. Uh, her she and her husband owned the Empire State Building, and she left twenty million dollars for her dog, whose name was Trouble. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the mon- the amount was knocked down. Uh, by uh, appeals. And I think ultimately there was $6 million set aside for the pet, which, you know, I, I can I can live with that, you know. I don't think I have that much coming to me that
0: we'd have to worry about setting a new legal precedent, but uh, <laughs> right. still. <laughs> right, right. The dogs had very thin ice if my wife's around. I'll just say that for the record. <laughs> That's right. just, you, might, she, you might slide the dog across
1: the ice into a hole, right?
0: <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I'm not cruel. I just, you know, I'm. I'm not I'm not that way about it, but uh, yeah, OK, so that's that is and, and so that kind of describes the state planning and within state planning, there's a bunch of ways you can go. Garden ships and conservatorships, and protecting children, the people incapacitated and inanimate or animals, I guess. Uh, I guess also part of state planning is, is leaving money to charities that you choose to. Um, uh, how does that how does that get built in? If I came to you and said, you know, when I pass, I'd like to give money to these charities. Is that just something you? Build in gifts, does somebody make those decisions? How does that work?
1: Yeah, well, you, you know, with most estate planning documents, there's there's oftentimes going to be a template for the document. I mean, no, nobody does a trust from scratch. You know, no attorney does that. You wouldn't have the time to do that. So <clears throat> the same as with, uh, occurs with our office. So, we have language that we have used that we uh, feel passes the, the test in terms of protecting the client and the distribution that they want to make. But we will generally set the language up, the terms for how that charity is to receive the distribution, what happens if the charity is not around. Generally, that means it's going to a, a like uh, charity, a similar charity. Um, and uh, we uh, have the language that will allow the successor trustee to uh, implement the tax deductions that may come for that uh, contribution.
0: Yeah, so there's, so estate planning includes a lot of details, a lot of possibilities, It's a very powerful tool to kind of attempt to kind of guide things. And in fact, uh, Linda High brings up another uh, interesting point. Thank you for that, Linda, is a uh, special needs trust, right? They're different, I, I saw that from Linda, yeah.
1: And I know it's, yeah, a, it's a whole yeah. area of law there, right? Sure it is, yeah. And we do, of course, do sub-trusts for special needs. I mean, we don't often, if we're doing an estate plan for someone, we don't try to have them do a separate special needs trust unless they, uh, it, it, unless the, the facts dictate that it's necessary. But in most cases, we do it as a sub-trust to the person's living trust. Mm-hmm. And of course, again, there you designate who's going to be in charge of the special needs trust. If you're creating the sub-trust, or someone else, the, the special needs subtrust. You can also designate what happens to the money if the special needs beneficiary were to die. And uh, but unlike, uh, there are other types of special needs trusts. For instance, what they call first-party special needs trust, in which, let's say, the person uh, became a special needs uh, person as a result of an accident and they uh, received a large amount from an award, a damage award, well, that money can be put into a special needs subtrust. That person who's the special needs person can still receive benefits from the state, but when that person dies, those special needs funds have to be returned to the state of California to reimburse the state for any monies that it put out on behalf of that special needs person. So that is to be distinguished from the third party special needs trust, which is where say a parent or grandparent or a friend, whomever creates a trust using their own money. Well, in that case, they can designate who the recipient will be if the special needs person dies, whereas as opposed to the first party trust where the person got the money from an accident or something, well, then that money has to be returned the state of California for reimbursement,
0: and so all these things are none of these things are important until they become important, and exactly. you're sitting in court, and there's a court-appointed attorney, there's this attorney, that attorney, there's fees coming out. It's amazing how when there's no plan, I would say it's chaotic, but it's certainly bureaucratic at the least. And so what you're sitting up is to try to minimize the bureaucracy and kind of push things down a, a path of known um, uh, known solutions, right. Okay, so that's estate planning. Next, um, trust administration services. So this is a case where somebody has a trust and and I've seen this personally, where some of the trust passes and they have a house. Okay, you can sell that, but they have other assets. Some are in the trust, some are not in the trust, trust by title, there's personal property, there's stocks, there's bonds, there's bank accounts and such. Um, And somebody has to get the records to file the tax returns. What does a trust administration service look like uh, to a family?
1: Well, of course, you start by marshaling the assets. You wanna know what the estate has, what the trust has. Of course, there will be some assets which are outside of the trust. For instance, when we do trust planning, we never put things like, uh, well, not often do we put things like IRAs or annuities or life insurance policies or retirement plans into the trust because those assets generally will have designated beneficiaries. They've named who they want to receive those assets. But what we do is make the trust the contingent beneficiary of of that asset. Um, So that money, while it it belongs to the deceased person, it's not something that's gonna be administered in the trust. So we want to find out in the trust what what the assets are that are in the trust and what the liabilities are for the deceased person. And uh, the obligation of the trustee is to, make sure that all uh, creditors who are uh, supposed to be paid are paid and that all taxes are paid and you want to also give notice to all of the beneficiaries statutory notice to all beneficiaries uh, that um, there is a trust administration occurring and that they have 120 days to object to any of the terms of the trust if they choose to and um, if they don't they are going to be barred from doing so so we we have the trust assets determined. We have the liabilities determined. We've given notice to everyone. Um, if there are assets like uh, real estate being passed, we of course want to file for the appropriate exclusions and whatnot. And after we've d- done that, we of course have to do an accounting uh, for the for the trust. That's. often a challenge that's often a challenge you're right you're right but it's 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 the place at which you want to uh, cut people off at the past in terms of uh, having ongoing uh, finger pointing which happens in these situations quite a bit now you want to be able to say okay here is the accounting you now can tell us whether you see anything in the accounting that you object to now even though we we, do the accounting and there may be people who object to the accounting you cannot use that as a basis for not distributing them to them their uh, designated share of the estate now you can't hold their distribution hostage until they approve the accounting you still have to make them their distribution but you have the right to withhold a reserve or issues that may come as a result of any possibility of disputes, legal disputes. So we may say, okay, um, here's your distribution, everyone, but we are withholding uh, uh, $50,000 and we're going to hold that for a certain period of time to make sure that there are uh, no litigation issues that come up. And uh, you can either do it that way, and generally you can hold it up to three years to 50,000, or you can file a petition for um, the court to approve the account, And of course, that's a quicker way to do it.
0: Uh, Michelle asked a question about what's the difference on creditors being notified when there's a probate versus a trust? I'm sorry, once again, Bill? Are the creditors notified in cases of probate uh, versus trust? How, how will creditors know about uh, the death and the opportunity to collect uh, in a yeah. trust situation?
1: Yeah, the only thing that we we do is make sure that we go through all of the paperwork of the client, of the decedent, and make sure that um, we don't see anything that uh, uh, we look, we check on every creditor that we are able to uh, locate and review in the the decedent's documents. But
0: there's no notice process. It's not like a probate where they're putting a notice. No, it's not like a
1: probate. There's no requirement that you publish notice in the paper or anything like that. So one of the advantages in the sense is that if
0: players are paying attention somebody passes the assets can all be distributed before they have a chance to raise their hand and say they're owed money okay good so i i guess we crossed yeah. over that yeah. and, and somebody asked Linda asked, ask these rules apply to california i mentioned is your your uh, license here in california or are you in other states as well
1: no just california
0: so i, I think linda to answer your question i'd say he's speaking as attorney here in California, not giving you legal advice, but giving you some education and some some uh, theoretical explanations. But these principles are pretty much true. I've interviewed attorneys now in about 10 different states and it seems like the rules are fairly similar in all states. They, they all seem to kind of copy each other or, or work from each other. So I'd say these are basic principles that are true, but if you're in a different state, you should check with an attorney that's licensed in that state great questions guys if you have questions put in the chat box or raise your hand in the zoom call i'll do my best to get to you if uh, this trust states the sole beneficiary is the son of the you know, and there's no other children no other spouse will the executor have to send those letters to other family members like brothers and sisters nieces nephews uh, kind of, okay so i think the short question is in a case of a trust mm-hmm. if the sole beneficiary is the son of the of the decedent who else does he have to notify assuming there's he's only a beneficiary is there any reason why we'd have to tell anybody else
1: yeah you want to be able to notify who, my, people who might be potential uh descendants of the decedent so if, let's say that there, there's a son who survives uh, but he had a brother who died and there are nephews and nieces from that deceased brother well you need to give notice to those people too because they even the even if it's a situation where the trust has uh, indicated that that person is to be disinherited, they still need to be notified so that they will have the opportunity to file an objection because they may want to allege that there was undue influence used uh, in the creation of the trust or that the trust or the trust creator uh, was uh, mentally incompetent at the time. So you, you can't just ignore them uh, and as though they don't exist. They need to at least be given notice. So an interesting concept. So the
0: fact that it's a trust, the privacy <clears throat> will not prevent somebody from being disinherited to protect the case of fraud, which is common, right? right? The caregiver or the nurse in the last week hasn't signed a trust that she's gonna get everything. And now the blue and it says you know she gets it all, and she's but she has to notify the son anyhow, which or the heirs to give them a chance to say, ho, ho. Where did this trust come from? We didn't hear about it. Dad was sick then, dad was senile then, dad was you know, not in capacity then. And so uh, they will have to give notice to at least pass that test, I guess, that there wasn't something going on. That's a great question, uh, Nikita. Thank you so much from Houston. Very good. Um, is a K-1 sent out every year? So the K-1 comes to the family on investments or the assets that they have. Um, I'm not sure what that means. Uh, Linda, I, I see your question by K one, but I'm not sure what you're asking. Is the K one sent out every year? I guess if you're if you're in a trust that has assets and has income, and you're and there's recipients of the income, they would get a K one. But and if they if the trust is receiving income, they will receive K ones from those investments. but I'm not sure how to answer what you're. Yeah, I right. think if it's
1: a, if it's an ongoing trust and the trust has not divested itself of of those assets, then yeah, you're still going to have to file
0: every right. year. Okay, and then so the kid follows up and says, "No, if the son is the only child, uh, and again, the kid, I think, I think Mr. Um, Hayes' answer was, if he was the only child ever, uh, and, and, you know, there's no other children, no, uh, then no, there'd be no need to know somebody else. But th- there's a case where maybe there were two sons, one died, but that other son had kids; they would have to be notified, for example. So just because people have passed, if they have, uh, dec- uh, they have children, then they might be heirs." Other than the verbiage of the trust. And I think what he's pointed out is you can't avoid telling people the status just because you don't want to tell them. If potentially they would have an objection, they have be notified. Okay. Um, income and property, there's income and debts. Okay. So yeah, uh, Linda is saying on income property, there's income and debts. So you have to do a K1. Here's the thing he has to send it out because he didn't uh, know what the excessive 2000 is not sure I understand your question. An income property, there's an income and in debts, trustee thinks he doesn't have to send it out for 2021 since he doesn't know what the expense would be for 2022. I'm not really sure what that means, Linda. That's a more complicated, I think, than we get into. I think I'll have to, I'll have to defer you to uh, another time on that one. Um, unless you want to unmute yourself and you can explain it.
1: Well, it sounds like a question that's more of a tax question yeah. Trust yeah. administration question.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a question about you, you have to, you have the same responsibilities, I think, to file as an individual, right? If you receive income and you have to file an income on that, uh, an income tax report on that income. And if you distribute income, then you have to file uh, information there as well. But right. I'm not the sure trustee
1: I, would have to file a fiduciary tax return, the 1041 uh, tax returns. Right. Uh, yeah. Linda, I don't know if you it's want income, to. You'll have to file the K once. Yeah.
0: Um, okay. Um If you want to unmute yourself and then jump in, I'm glad to let you do that. but I'm not sure I'm following the question.
2: Yeah, I'm one of the beneficiaries on the trust from my mother and it's fourplex. So there's income coming in and then there's debts going out. And my brother is the executive trustee. And when I asked him about the disbursements for 2021, he said he didn't do it because he know, doesn't know what expenses there's going to be for 2022. So like if we have to put a new roof on or something like that, but from my understanding is every year he needs to do it, he can't just say there's a projection of extra expenses for the following year, is that correct?
1: I would be inclined to agree with you.
2: So, you know, just because, I mean, we do need to put a roof, but does that mean he doesn't have to give disbursements in 2021 because...
1: Well, I think that would be, if he's not doing it until 2022, that's something that applies to 2022.
2: Exactly, and he's still getting in, We're still getting income for 2022. So, right. okay, he that's what he thinks. He thinks he doesn't have to because there's pro- projected expenses. Right. Well, has he been talking to an accountant? I mean,
1: I think an accountant. I don't know. That's what he's
2: on. telling me, and yeah. but of course, you know, there's still income coming in. But sure, mm-hmm.
1: that's my another.
0: To, my father used to say, "You can write off anything you want." Until the iris audits you, it makes you prove it up. Then you have to figure out. <laughs> you know, yeah,
2: that's. And I mean, all of the beneficiaries are thinking, "Where's the K one disbursements?" You know. Right. Yeah. And can I ask one more question? If a, if a person such as myself wants to get bought out, is it something a simple thing to be bought out of it, or do I have to go to an attorney to do that?
1: No, it's. I mean, if if, if the other beneficiaries want to buy you out, there's no need to. Um, get an attorney involved. I mean, not necessarily depends on how complex the issues are, but
2: um, no, they trustee. don't want to buy me out, but I want them to refinance and buy me out. This is just so too oh. much, too much family drama.
1: Yeah, well, a, a lot of that will depend on what the discretion is that is given to the trustee. I mean, if the trustee can decide to sell or keep or refinance, and that trustee is given reasonable discretion then that's what's really going to control here
2: if he does nothing it's okay too i mean
1: well he can't do nothing if it's in not in the best interest of the trust he has to do what is in the best interest of the trust that's the ultimate uh, uh, light that he has to follow what's in the best interest of the trust
2: okay thank you sure
0: <clears throat> so we've had a chance to kind of talk about uh. Can we, okay, so we talked a lot about your practice.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of people on this call are real estate investors, wholesalers, or like me, real estate agents, where we stumble across somebody who needs some help, and the help involves legal services. Can you describe a little bit, what is it like for you, personally, in your, in your firm, working with real estate agents, working with investors? Is that a common thing? Is it not common? If so, what does that look like?
1: It's, it's very common, I mean, because, most of the uh, trusts will contain real estate uh, so if the trustees decide to sell the real estate we're always going to work with different real estate agents do you have but uh, do you have
0: real estate agents that come to you when customers are looking to sell the property they don't know how to manage it in the trust maybe the attorney who wrote the trust isn't available do you get you know does it do you get involved at that stage of the process or you talk about just your clients um, who need to sell property, or buy. I imagine there's some of both. But do you get cases where you know, real estate agents have a deal, but the family can't move because of some document paperwork legal issue? Is that part of your process? Yeah, that happens too. But
1: primarily, it's because my clients uh, have a trust and, and they're deciding to sell the trust, it's particularly in light of what happened with Proposition 19 and um, the uh, exemption going away largely for a parent to child transfers. So, uh, because they don't have the same full exemption that they had before under Prop 58 for parent child transfers, many children are more apt to just sell the property than they used to. Um, um, So yeah, I I get involved at at that point. not so much that, that I get calls from real estate agents because of glitches in, in a transaction, but sometimes it
0: happens. Um, you get, and How do people typically come to you for estate planning services? I know you do a lot of outreach and education, is that your primary way
1: or? Yeah, well, it used to be that I would do a lot of seminars for, um, uh, for companies, um, and organizations, I uh, would do presentations of hotels and so so forth at libraries and since the pandemic I do everything on the web and uh, we regularly have uh, presentations we have them every Wednesday at 6 and every Saturday at 10 on estate planning and sometimes it'll be a presentation on Medicaid planning or trust administration or probate um and we do a, a lot of uh, frequently asked question uh, spots that are all, all over the internet i think um and um we we do a lot of mailers as well
0: there you go so um, a little, we, his website has a list of uh a number of the up, uh, up, upcoming webinars i've been on a couple of them the great interesting topics he, I, I think you really get in some niches which is i find interesting um to explain. I know I've learned a lot watching what you do. So, and that was really what prompted me, quite frankly, the first time I called reached out to you after we met, was it seems like you're so focused on educating people to work with you. I think there's a lot of ways to get people to want to work with you. Um, right. I'm not going to take pictures of myself in a bikini on the internet just to get attention. I, I <laughs> well, that would get it, attention, Bill. <laughs> I would, but but not, not the kind of attention I want. And um no. But I think, like you, I, I've, I've often tried to work on educating my my uh, marketplace so that I can be perceived as an expert and people can draw their, their own assessment based on what they see. And I think you've done the same in a really professional way, so I know I appreciate it. Um, Chuck says, I, I'll, okay, no, that you you. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so. Um, Algorithm. <laughs> what is that? Algorithm that's what that means. Does Al Gore dance or something? I'm not sure what that means. I'm a little out of the pop culture I think. So okay, last call for questions, raise your hands or the chat box, feel free to put a question, raise your hand in the zoom call if you're watching the live stream. I see a bunch of people on our live stream. We a nice number there on the YouTube, especially. Thanks for checking in and watching us. Um, feel free, last call though for questions. Uh, I've been I've been under the weather a little bit this week I, and I actually caught the Coronavirus for the first time in this whole hmm. cycle. So um, well, I'm uh, definitely dragging a little bit myself, but thank you for, for uh, uh, that's a great question, Sherry. So how do you get, this is a question from a real estate agent, I believe. How do, I get, how do we get ourselves in front of attorneys to get more probate business? I'm willing to launch this part of my business. So uh, if, 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 let's say it wasn't here in LA, let's say you're advising a real estate agent in another county or you weren't in the business and a realtor came and said, you know, I, I, I see the market for probate as a real estate agent and I want to service it, what advice would you give them to earn the faith and confidence of attorneys to refer them to business?
1: Yeah, that is a good question because we do get a lot of people who approach us about um, wanting to uh, refer business to them. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I think the best way to get the attorneys to want to work with a real estate agent is to give them something rather than just approaching the attorney about um i sell real estate i do probate real estate and so forth you have to give them something that will catch their attention otherwise you'll be put into the uh, into the, the the trash can so if, if there was one person who used to send me out uh, articles related to real estate and probate and real estate and trust administration. That caught my attention. And you can can believe when that person ultimately did call me, that is somebody that I had already developed a sense of respect for, and I was willing to talk to that person. But quite honestly, more often than not, I, I don't return the calls, just to be honest. So you need to come up with something that is going to make that attorney uh, distinguish you from everybody else who sends a letter saying, I sell probate real estate because right. we get those every day. So what might some examples be of that field? mind sharing
0: Not not that we shall line up at the Hayes mm-hmm. law firm with, a, a box of candy and flowers, but, uh, what, what, <laughs> what might a box of candy and flowers look like, you know, I know, for example, in the old days, my father was an attorney, uh, uh in the old days, um, you know, when I was in real estate, I was in the mortgage business. I started and mm-hmm. I, but I also solicited business from attorneys. And so he said, you know, almost any attorney, if you call them, invite them to lunch, at a nice restaurant, they'll sit down with you and have lunch and you'll meet them. Don't ask for business, but start the relationship. And I always felt like that was such a, uh, effective tool though. These days with COVID, that's a bit of a challenge mm-hmm. and people are more hesitant to go out. What, what would be appropriate things to, to give an attorney to help them? uh, so that they can show that value. You have any examples of
1: mine? Well, I mean, as I said, articles that, uh, information, information kind of, uh, yeah, intersect, uh, probate and, uh, and, uh, real estate or okay. trust in real estate. Okay. And as far as inviting people out to, um, out for lunch, I had someone recently who invited me out to lunch, but the, the lunch came via DoorDash. And Thanks. so we, our meeting was on Zoom. Nice. So, if you tell someone, you know, I'm, I'm going to uh, have lunch sent over from Fleming Steakhouse or something, not, not many attorneys are going to say no, why nice. not, yeah, and at least you'll get a chance to speak to that person. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But what, what happens after that, of course, is up to you, because there's also the reality of once anybody gets back into their lane, right, they're not going to really think about you anymore. Right. So from right. that point, you have to have some kind of drip campaign to stay in front of that person and to reach out to that person periodically. So hopefully you bonded with them during that lunch so that when you make that call every two or three months and say, Hey, Joe, how are things going? They'll take the call. Right. Yeah.
0: If developed that relationship. It's not a one-time thing, right? Your, mm-hmm. your, your, your legal practice isn't for sale with one Stake for Flemings. It's going to be a few phone calls as well. Two right? maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Eric asked a question that if somebody has a living trust on a property, is there any way they can revoke it? Like the property is vacant, and the recipient, uh, of the life estate hasn't done any anything in it. uh So we we see this where people have a trust, and they say the trust are going to give it to so and so, and so and so is living there, but it's it's uh, decrepit. Can, it, and I, I think the answer is that well, there's two types of trust, there's revocable and there's irrevocable,
1: correct? True sure enough, yeah. And most people, of course, have revocable trust, what people refer to as the living trust. Uh, but if, if, if the person who created the trust has died and the beneficiary is not showing any interest, I had a situation not long ago where uh, someone had moved into property and declare to everybody that you know I'm living in this property and I'm paying the taxes. Well, basically, what that means is is that they are taking possession of that property through what is called adverse possession. And if they stay in that property for five years, living uh, the phrase in most uh, legal cases is referred to as living in the property in an open and notorious way, meaning you you're you're not shy about saying this is my home and you pay the taxes and whatever other uh, maintenance costs there are and you do it for 5 years it's going to be hard for that beneficiary to come back 6 years later and say hey that's my property so
0: right.
1: so the answer then is with the
0: living trust by definition a living trust is revocable trust you can revoke it it's an right. irrevocable trust and when is an is an irrevocable trust more about shielding assets is that
1: is that the distinction yeah, so for instance, in Medicaid planning, when we do a living trust, we include in our trust something that we refer to as Medicaid triggers. And basically, without going into detail, it's a, it's, it's a way to enable and authorize these, the person who is in the trust, who is in charge of the trust when uh, the uh, trust creator becomes disabled to be able to move assets out of that trust into an irrevocable trust. The living trust is revocable, you wanna move it into an irrevocable trust. You put those assets there, but you have to do it in a very precise way. You can't just take the property, I mean, take the assets in mass and just transfer them. You can't take $100,000 and say, hey, I'm just transferring it into this this, uh, irrevocable trust. There's, they have a, a process for transferring assets in California when you're doing Medicaid planning that will allow you to transfer those assets without causing the uh, potential Medicaid recipient to disqualify themselves. So you you have to transfer the assets in increments under a certain amount. The same with real estate. If you're transferring real estate and you wanna get it out of your name, let's say you have an investment property And I say investment property, because if it's your primary residence for Medicaid planning, that uh, property is considered exempt. Uh, So you don't have to worry about it. You can take uh, your primary residence and just put it into the Medicaid trust as it is. But if you have an investment property, you have to do it with fractional deeds. And uh, you have to keep it under the certain dollar amount as you transfer the deeds on a regular basis until the entire value has been transferred into the irrevocable trust. And there are different types of irrevocable trust. There are irrevocable trust that hold insurance policies. Uh, that's, we often do that when people have very large estates. And you, you, when you have an insurance policy, that's considered part of your estate. So if you have a million dollar insurance policy that you're paying the premiums on for estate tax purposes, that million dollar payout is part of your estate and thus subject to the estate tax. So um, you, but when we do insurance trust, oftentimes we do it to decrease the value of the estate so that it stays under the estate tax threshold. And as I said before, currently that estate tax threshold per person is $12,060,000. And, and, but again, it's going to revert in the year two thousand twenty-six to 20, uh, five thousand uh, dollars, with the, plus the cost of inflation may impact that. Uh, but uh, you, uh, the insurance trust is often used to pay the estate tax to very large estates. Okay. So since it's out of the trust, out of the estate of the person, they can make arrangements with that insurance trust to pay the estate tax. Uh, then there are charitable trusts. Often those are irrevocable. So they're you know, like charitable remainder trust and charitable lead trust. there are, there are trusts. They're they trust called grats where people want to transfer their uh, properties to maybe their children and and get uh, a tax benefit um, and get that asset out of their estate. There are all types of irrevocable trusts. But the, the the overriding theme for those uh, types of trusts is once you uh, create the trust and you fund that trust with assets, you can't ask for it back, theoretically, because there always there's always a way, right? And, well, if you have an
0: attorney, there's always a chance to ask.
1: Yes, yes. So if every if you even with the irrevocable trust, if you get everybody on board and they say, hey, let's let's uh, tear this document up, well, you tear it up.
0: Matt asked a question, how, how important, when somebody approaches you, um, it, how um, more likely to work with them, if in addition to being a real estate agent, they're also an auctioneer or they hold auctions. Is the, I know that in, in LA, we have certain types of probates that have to go to auction because they're, um, when the LA County um, uh, attorney handles the case, that's their format, they use auctioneer as their service. Uh, and I know there are other companies that do that on a retail basis as well. And it's one of those tools in real estate outside of probate That kind of, it's a concept that sounds good once in a while and seems to have and flow. Is the auction process important to you? Is that, is that, if I came to you and, and, and sent you in addition to being a realtor, I have an auction and here's why that will get you a better price for client. Is that something you're interested in hearing about? Or is that just another gimmick to you?
1: Well, you know, I haven't had much experience with it, okay. but I can, I can tell you that if, if that were offered to a client, that might be something that would appeal to a lot of trustees.
0: Nice, nice to know. And yeah. then, um, how important are, say, somebody having a designation such as certified estate specialist or a certified uh, probate uh, expert? Are those kind of, I know with attorneys, there's designations that you get certain privileges and postings on your bar and such with. Are those designations something you pay attention to in real estate agents or are they um, not so important? Well,
1: they're important to to the extent that you have the assumption that at least that person has some experience or knowledge, okay. but ultimately it just comes down to human relationships. You know, okay. is this somebody that you like and can work with? You know, are they going to put the energy into to make sure that this client is taken
0: care of? Yeah, I, I mean, we as we'll see just I'm sure attorneys as well, we get marketed all the time by companies and, and the value of the designation and, and people ask me and I say the value is the education. It gives you the confidence and the ability to give value to your customer. But the designation, you can copy it on the internet and use it fraudulently, you're not gonna get any more business, it doesn't really do anything for you. Mm-hmm. Um, question from New North Carolina, Linda says uh, she got an email from a realtor that her aunt died in Florida, was looking for relatives. She said she had a son, believed he died, blah, 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 didn't know, Hard a PI to search. Well, there's a long story here. I'm sorry, you got started on all of this. Um, uh, haven't said that. And will any the niece be entitled to anything in the house? Okay. So <clears throat> tax sale in July. So Florida moves, other states move Actually, than California. And and um, Mr. Hayes is licensed here in California. So other than for sport, he really can't give you an answer on what happens. but. Um, this is a common problem in the South in particular, where um, it was common that families have eight or ten children and, and the next generation had also eight or ten children. All of a sudden grandma grandpa had like 50, uh, had 50 grandkids. And when they pass, if they didn't do an estate plan, uh, all 50 have a fractional share, none care enough to take care of the matter uh, and somebody and those disputes. and then people buy up bits and pieces of it along the way. And take over. Are you aware of this process at all? It's more common in the South. It's not as common here in California, but it's particularly challenging in the rural parts of the South where, um, you know, in the old days, we all had larger families. And in, uh, uh, in rural areas, they tend to have larger families. Uh, but it's becoming a very big, I think, I don't want to say political issue, but it's, it's becoming an issue of our families losing their family airships through these um, uh, processes. Is this something you're familiar with at all?
1: I'm sorry, when you say through these processes, what, what are the processes? So
0: these are fractional interests. And so what happens is nobody's really in charge. And so taxes don't get paid. And then investors buy up tax sales, and then, then they become fractional owners. And they force to sell the property. But among the 50 grandkids, none really care to buy the property. So the one guy kind of gets it on, mm-hmm. They'll he'll say on the cheap. Of course, uh, the investor would say, well, you could outbid me if you think it's worth more. Um, and so there's a there's a kind of a controversy about. Um, look, this is the after effect of not planning proper estate. As you have these grandparents who worked their whole lives for these properties, in this these cases many times farms, where they meant to keep them in their family forever. Maybe they did, they didn't know, or some of these processes like estate planning didn't exist back then. Um, it is sad to see happening, but it's very common. I know in South Carolina, in Georgia, and in, in Florida, um, and and they're very litigious because you have multiple errors and multiple attorneys. I'm not sure we could really get into that in detail here today. Linda, it's an important topic, but I don't know that's really quite our our topic here today. Maybe we could talk offline sometime. Uh, okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, Michelle, you make a good point um, about that. Okay, any other questions that I see here? Uh, I don't see any hands up or any other questions. Anybody have anything else for... Um, uh mr hazier i appreciate you know the court's been changing so much you and i met when it was open and now then it was locked down and now we're somewhat back open how do how do you see uh the change are we are we going to go back to where we have the more collegial probate bar existence like we did in l.a county or is this kind of the new normal the mostly online and rarely see your colleagues in person uh, uh how do you see that happening
1: well, Bill, as as much as I enjoy seeing you, I do like being able to be uh, on court call with a cup of coffee in my hand. Uh-huh. So if, if it stays this way, I'm okay with it. I, think I, I like be, not having to tr- go through traffic, park, go into the courthouse. No, I like the new normal.
0: I will say that to, I, I go for an occasional purchase or, or sell a property, and yeah. those I have to go in person. Uh, so I do go about once every two or three weeks. I put on a suit, tie, get up like a, like a real person, go to work. <laughs> it's right. it is, it is kind of fun once in a while, but I don't miss doing it every day. It's too nice. I can see why you wouldn't. Yeah. Well, look, I just want to thank you so much for your time. You and your staff have been so gracious to give your time here today. I know we've recorded some other material with you, and just to kind of a quick recap. soon want to get a hold of you, what's the best way? If they have a detailed question or have a client that's looking for an estate plan or have they have a probate question. What's the best way to get in touch with you?
1: They can always call the office um, and just indicate that they uh, uh, became aware of me through this uh, conversation with you, Bill. Or if they have a question, they can um, write us at info at um, Or they can attend one of our webinars on Wednesdays at 6, Saturdays at 10, and we take questions uh at that time so the choice is yours you have alternatives well look thanks i i don't think there's any
0: attorney who is as good and consistent about educating their their clients as well as prospective clients as you guys are i really admire it and appreciate it i'm glad to be part of it today thank you so much for your
1: time uh and thank Thank you you for the honor of uh, talking to you i appreciate that
0: well great and for everybody else this wraps up probate weekly we do this every thursday 4 pm Pacific. You can set up at probateweekly.com. We live stream it on YouTube and on Zoom and LinkedIn. On YouTube and Facebook and LinkedIn. Feel free to ask questions there. Reach out to me. Appreciate you guys' support. Thanks so much.